We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore and Ann Baldwin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's program. I'm pleased to once again be joined by my co-host for the program, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore, also the Chief Executive Officer of The Connection. And we've also got with us in studio today Patrick Fallon. He's the Director of Community Justice Services for The Connection. And we were really lucky. We lucked out. We even got a state representative to take a couple of moments to join us for this program. We've got State Representative Brandon McGee here. And he is a Democrat who represents Windsor and also Hartford. So, Representative, first of all, welcome to the program. Uh, We want to talk to you because, you know, having Patrick on this program we're talking about community justice services that are offered by the connection and Patrick I'm gonna let you take over this interview because you've been working with a representative and and you're really impressed by the approach that he takes to remediation if you will of people's lives correct um, thank you for your time sir um, could you talk a little bit about um, some of the work you've done with the Second Chance Act certainly certainly and and before I even dive into uh, responding to your question, I really appreciate the opportunity to be uh, on the show uh, to talk a little bit about the work uh, that's already being done statewide here in Connecticut. Um, and I'm just afforded the opportunity, number one, to be a part of the conversation, but I think, two, uh, sharing my perspective, having been uh, in a household whose parent, one of my parents, one of my, my father actually, uh, experienced um, a lot of time behind bars and so i i i understand but patrick to, to answer your question um the, the state of connecticut has done um a lot of work uh to number one bring the conversation of of, of re-entry providing individuals with a second opportunity as they re-enter uh into our various communities and neighborhoods uh but focusing a bit more on the barriers that one faces mm-hmm. when they do enter the community. Uh, my thesis, my master's, um, uh, was basically on this very topic. You know, what types of services, what types of legislation is helping to support individuals that are entering uh, back into community? Uh, we can talk about many different barriers, but for me, I, I could remember, like, it was yesterday, my father coming home, sitting at the dining room table with my siblings and my mother, and, and really struggling, you know, trying to figure out how is he going to, number one, support himself, but support his family. He could not find employment. Um, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, the connection has been, you know, forward thinking in this. And as we sit here and listen to the representative story, real life story about his father, um, what comes to mind and how have you kind of molded your programs around those kinds of needs? We talked about stereotypes before the show started. It's all part of the part of the puzzle, right? Right. I think that um, clearly we we find also, too, that all of the um, 
the folks that, you know, that we interact with, you know, this topic really is their passion for a variety of reasons, whether it touched them personally or through a family member. And I think that really speaks to um, the reason why I think that this program is so important, because I'm sure our listeners are listening and feeling in some way they can relate to um, what the representative is telling us today. But also, the, you know, Connecticut, uh, just to echo what was just said, Connecticut has been extremely forward thinking uh, with uh, with regard to, you know, safety and community justice, et cetera. And so our programs are continually growing and changing due to the rapid needs in Connecticut. All right. Well, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with uh, State Representative Brandon McGee, and we should mention that you're serving your third term. Congratulations, I think. Congrats. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Thank right. you. And you represent uh, parts of Windsor and Hartford. You're also the vice chair of finance, revenue, and bonding committees. Uh, you're also a member of the APROPS Education and Human Services Committee. So, you know, let me ask you one of the tough questions that's being asked right now, if I can, Representative McGee, and that is, Please. that is, you know, dollars are short. A lot of agencies like The Connection, like other social service agencies, like, you know, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, you know, it's cut, 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 cut to the bone. And um, so how much of a voice do you have up there? And what is it that you're, you're pleading for? What is it that you want to see happen for people in our community, whether they're suffering from addiction, homelessness, incarceration? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, number one, we all know and you all have read in the paper or you've received notices uh, if you are a leader of any nonprofit or state agency of cutbacks and layoffs and et cetera. Um, one of the things uh, among many um, I am advocating for uh, our services that are directly connected to the very programs that you just outlined. But the reality that we face here in the state of Connecticut is that we've not, we have not, and I repeat, we have not uh, identified new streams of revenue mm -hmm. uh, to support many right. of these programs. Agreed. Um, so I think what we have to do is Connecticut, you know, we have to take a look at ourselves. We got to figure out how to be a bit more innovative. Um, we have to be a, a bit more creative, become a bit more business friendly. Uh, but also, in addition to that, we have to figure out how to do some things differently. And, you know, for many years, we've been spending and spending and spending. And again, not thinking about years down the line, which we're faced with today. How are we going to pay for the very services that that mean a lot to many of our districts? So. You know, streamlining, consolidating, or, hey, program, can you look at other ways in which, you know, by which you can, you know, uh, take care of your budgets and, and programs and services? So there's not necessarily one answer uh, to all of the questions that are being asked on how do we save many of these programs. But for me, that's, that's my response. I mean, um, I, but then if I had to scale back, I have to take care of of my district and just making sure people there um, are, are taken care of. Um, but it's, it's tough. I would also like to say that the state of Connecticut cannot afford the price tag of mass incarceration anymore. The services we provide, we provide at a much lower rate than it That's costs right. to keep people incarcerated. Right. So I think it's very important that the people of Connecticut understand that, that it's very expensive to continue to incarcerate low-risk offenders. Um, can, can I just add can I just add something? One of the things that was really special about our roundtable discussion on reentry is that we had not only formerly incarcerated at the table, but we had business owners. We Absolutely. had the nonprofit sector. We had the foundation 
uh, Hartford Foundation for Public Given, and other private investors that are interested in this very topic that we're talking about. And so there's no there's no real cookie cutter approach to helping one re-enter the community. Right. And so we have to be open minded about this and think creatively um, on how we're going to fund uh, many of these these great programs and social services that are being provided. So. Um, that's still a part of the conversation, and I think that, you know, everything that you just said, Patrick, is, is true. Well, and Representative, I want to thank you for being on the program. We're going to continue this conversation. We'd love to have you back again, and I think one of the big steps in the right direction is having somebody like Senator McGee, who is... Oh, at, man, I got a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just got a personal endorsement. You're kind of cute, there too. There you go. Say I something. love it. <laughs> So what I'll do is don't hang me up. I'll put myself on mute, and I'd love to hear the remaining of the conversation. Okay, well, thank you. Before we do that, I just want to thank you on behalf of the Connection for your support of our programs and all the great work that you're doing um, in our state to, you know, really work around this issue. And as you know, but I'm going to just reiterate to you that we're really grateful and we're really open to further conversations to think out of the box because we want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So thank you so much. I applaud your efforts. So, you know, what we just heard from the representative is someone up there with a real perspective. And it's like anything else, you know, as a person myself in recovery, you know, my kids have a different perspective on people in recovery because they've lived with it. Right. You know, just like, you know, Representative McGee, his father, you know, incarcerated, sitting at the kitchen table, which Mm he's, you know, describes. And I can see that. Can't you just hear that? I could just hear the passion um, in his voice about how dedicated he is to this work and why it hits home for him. And I think that's really huge um and clearly he's you know doing the best that he can and he and he wants to think out of the box and i do agree with everything that he pointed out about moving forward and you know there isn't it isn't cookie cutter we need Mm -hmm. to be creative in connecticut and come together and sit at the table and realize that we're all piece of this a piece of this puzzle and we need to bring our resources to further serve this um population i i think it's very important that we get together and address some of the stigmas and Mm -hmm. uh, misinformation that's attached to reentry um, the majority of the people that are incarcerated in our state are very low risk. Um, you, you take a lot of people, you put them in a small area with very little opportunity. With what we create is, is an atmosphere of hopelessness. Um, and, you know, we incarcerate these people and we send them right back to these areas. Um, there's there's um, very small areas of Connecticut where where a majority of inmates who are who are incarcerated right now come from, um, and I also think we need to reinvest in those communities and create opportunities for those people. Well, isn't it just like if you if you identify a certain neighborhood where everybody's getting breast cancer, right? Look at the research and look at the energy that goes into figuring out why is that happening? Why is everybody getting sick? Mm -hmm. Well, wouldn't you think you'd do the same thing if you had a community like that, which you've already said, Patrick, has been identified. What's going on there? What can be changed? What kind of services do they need? Do they need jobs? What are they housing? What is it? Well, well, in my opinion, the problem is, is that in these areas, people are actually disenfranchised, which is one of the things mass incarceration does. It disenfranchises people from from um, the whole political fight. So a lot of constituents, if you don't have a personal investment in something like this, it's not in your political interest to do anything other than say, lock them up, you know, um, they break the law, they deserve to be in jail. Um, 
we do know what the problem is. It's there's a stigma. There is a stigma. You, you know, when somebody's diagnosed with breast cancer, we find a cluster of of breast cancer um, people. As a society, we want to help them. Right. When you're talking about formerly incarcerated or incarcerated people, we don't have that same empathy and compassion. Absolutely not. So the Connection, Lisa, has a program called REACH, Reentry Assisted Community mm-hmm. Housing, and I'll have you both speak to that. And I, you know, I'm curious how long this has been going on. And I got to tell you, as a former news reporter, um, one of the stories that it seemed to always be recurring was uh, not in my backyard. People would want to put these supportive housing programs and services into neighborhoods, which is where people deserve to live. But, you know, there'd always be an outcry, a protest. So talk a little bit about your REACH program. And I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but, you know, what has the, um, how how have communities or have they, you know, welcomed this at all since my old days of news reporting when it was protest after protest? Right. Um, Well, to be frank, um, a lot of the neighborhoods where we house these people, it what reaches is it's a scattered housing um, program throughout the state of Connecticut. We um, what we do is we rent two bedroom apartments from landlords, and we house two two people coming out of incarceration. Um, for the most part, the people in the neighborhood do not know the difference between their neighbor who hasn't been incarcerated and these people. Um, that, that that's a, a good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. They do not know. Um, the REACH program is, is um, very unique in the fact that we, we actually give people coming out of, out of the system a, a lot of autonomy as if they are free in society. They have to cook. They have to fend for themselves. They have to wash clothes. Those, those are really big things. That we Wait a take minute. I'm going to stop you there. You said yeah. they have to cook, they have to, they have to do this, they have to do that. They don't have to. What it is to me is they're just productive members of society, exactly. right? So it's not that they have to. They have the opportunity they, to live like a normal resident, they, right? Exactly. They have jobs. They have responsibilities. They have skills. It's not like these people were just plopped into a jail cell without life skills before exactly. they got there, right? Right. Well, right. Some of them, you'd, you'd be amazed. Some of them um, um, work. I okay. think I think one of one of the most overused terms in 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 this field is rehabilitation. Um, I, I stress not to use that term with with employees because when we say rehabilitation, what we are doing is um, assuming that people have these skills, and sometimes we start somewhere where they aren't ready to be. I see. You still got to meet them where they're at. Meet them where they're at. So, Lisa, what do you think about that? And and as the CEO of The Connection, um, is that where you focus? We talk about meeting people where they're at. Absolutely. Because everybody's different. And I love what the um, representative said is that, and you repeated it, it's not a cookie-cutter approach. Everybody's individual, and so shouldn't their care be. Their care has to be individualized. That's really key. You know, everyone's at a different place. They've had different, while there may be similar experiences, there are also many differences. And the key is really getting to get to know that client that we're dealing with and to meet them where they are and to take the treatment from there and to to build realistic expectations and goals because not not everybody's the same. I think the other thing, too, is that one thing that happens um, is... 
you know, you may see someone who's, you know, 45 or 55 or whatever the age is. And so, you know, immediately you may assume, oh, this person's at a specific age. Therefore, their maturity level somewhere that, you know, they need to be doing X, Y and Z. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we bring staff on that understand that, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover and you really need to start. You know, it's like peeling an onion. You find out what's really going on and you start working on the issues to assist the person to move forward. And we've we've always been astonished by the clients and many folks that have gone through our doors, really how far they've progressed, you know, since coming into to treatment and that they stay in contact with us and, you know, in the future program, um, you know, and we're, you know, I know we're going to be bringing on clients that have graduated from our program and you'd be just be astonished to hear the success, really. So if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Patrick Fallon. He's the director of the Community Justice Services Program. And of course, we've got Lisa DeMattis Lapore, who's with me every week on this program. And we appreciate you being along listening. So let's talk a little bit, Patrick, because you've been in this this line of work, let's call it, for several years. Correct. Um, how has it changed? And share some of the, you know, we can sit here and talk about how these programs work and how they work, but tell me some stories of some individuals, obviously, obviously without, you know, breaking mm-hmm. their confidentiality, but what have you seen? What What is it that keeps you, you know, getting out of bed every morning and, and heading into the office? Hmm. Well, there's nothing better than um, being in the grocery store or being in the mall or in a parking lot and somebody walking up to you and saying, hey, do you remember me? And you're like, of course I remember you. And they're married and they're working and and they're saving money or they bought a house and they thank you for the work that um, that you've done with them. That That's what gets me up every morning and um, sort of keeps me doing this work. I love that story. It's interesting to say that because I had that same experience this week where I was at a Uh, community um, client award dinner and a former client of mine over 25 years ago I would never have recognized him you know came up to me and reintroduced himself and of course then it all started flowing back and he said um, and this isn't why you know why we do the work obviously but he said you were such an important part of my life you know 27 years ago and you have no idea really you know what was going on and you know what changes I made since then and he's had his struggles you know since and he was actually one of our programs but again I think that you know the point is that it's with any circumstance that you have Anne those people that are there for you during your you know time Darkest of need days. they do mm-hmm. they they're they, you know it can be the smallest little thing oh, but you remember those not to that person I, I, not I, to that person though yeah. i mean it even goes down to even people in the you know i uh, again you know i'm not gonna get into overly personal story but you know going through a health crisis with a family member it was that person that parked my car because mm-hmm. i was so frustrated and upset about what was happening that took the car and just made that moment of my life easier mm-hmm. and so it's all those people it's remembering what it's like viewing from um you know the consumer's point when you're needing a service viewing it through those eyes what it's really like and you know what patrick can you tell a quick just a quick story to our listeners about that the project that happened in your service area where we had the clients walking around with cameras oh yeah uh yeah that was that was actually pretty pretty neat um what we did was was we had our clients um go out in the community where they were from and we gave them cameras, video cameras, and they could take still pictures. And they took pictures of the environment where they came from and uh, where they're going. And we had it all pieced together and put, put sound to it. And it was, it was a, a story about their life. Mm. Um, and, you know, they took so much pride in this. Um, and you could see what it did was 
as they were telling this story, you could see with, with a lot of these guys that you would actually see this spark of hope. Right. You know, and I, I see that as my job and the people I work with. We, our job is to instill hope in people because if people are hopeless, they're not going to put the effort you know, fourth. Absolutely. Well, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Reach Up, which is the Reentry Assisted Community Housing Program. So that was a one-year federally funded project and um, to collect the data, right? So, so okay, so we have the Reach Up program, okay. which is a scattered housing site. In, right. In 2014, we applied for a grant with um, the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Um, it was a m adult mentoring for people re-entering into society. Now, I, I, I wanna preface this by saying that um, peers, um, peer services, like self-help where, where people help each other, is very popular in recovery from, from substance abuse. Um, it's very popular in mental health. But when you talk about the criminal justice field, because there's a stigma, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to put two criminals together because they're going to commit a crime. Which is it, so wrong. It's it, like it, saying, it I don't want to put two drunks it together is. because they're going to go drinking. What, 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 when, we better get out of the same room. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we were awarded this grant, um, we brought peers in to, to go in, and it, it was part of a study. We had a, con a control group who didn't receive the peer mentoring um, services, and we had a group that, that received the mentoring services. Um, and what the mentors do is they come in, and, and they've been where these men are. So they instill hope automatically because they've managed to, to um, navigate a lot of barriers that these, right. these gentlemen are currently going through. So our listeners can't mm -hmm. see this graph that I have in front of right. me. But, you know, like anything, when you receive federal funding, you have to keep track of your successes mm -hmm. and or your failures. And that's what you've done. And this looks like nothing but success to me. Right. So explain to our listeners what the outcomes of, of what's really called you know, the, the peer to peer, mm -hmm. you know, the mentored support. So, so again, I, I, I need to say that we're in the beginning stages of, of, um, paring down the data, but what, what we see so far is very promising. There, there's a 30% difference in success for people who receive the peer related services, uh, uh, when you compare it against the people who did not receive the services, that that is a tremendous it's huge. It's really, it's really huge. Well, it's huge, Lisa. But you know, let me ask you this because we just talked to the representative about you know funding issues, and Patrick indicated, well, we're just in kind of the infancy of this program. Well, a lot of agencies and a lot in a lot of your programs, you know, they're contingent on continued funding for continued success. I mean, how do you deal with that when you see that these things are working and you know at any time, you know, you could get, you know, one of your pillars knocked out from under you? Oh, that's just like my worst nightmare. That's why I'm up at two o'clock in the morning, I guess. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons. Um, I think that we believe that we are, you know, a visionary organization. We have come up with some pretty creative ways to keep our programs afloat. 
And one thing that I have to say is that I'm really proud of um, is that we do have the data and mm-hmm. research that's connected to our programs. We're publishing articles right now about it. And, you know, we're going to be getting the word out there. And, you know, we're hoping, I mean, we're working, you know, very quickly in um, talking to folks in the community and, pup- and folks up at the legislative office building about how we can be part of the solution and showing them that numbers are working, we're saving money. I mean, there, there comes a point where, you know, some services, if we stop them, they're going to be devastating right. to our state, period. And we're, it's going to cost the state more money. Right. Say, no, triple. You know, that's the thing that people it, don't okay. get. You no. know, it sounds like, well, you want you should be asking yourself why are we spending all this money to incarcerate and reincarcerate people where if they got the proper tools when they got out the first time or when they were even in there we wouldn't have half of this problem and, and that's why you know i think that you know we've been collecting data for so long and i think we've really been ahead of the curve with regard to you know this aside work that we do with our numbers and you know they really tell a story and we've been able to you know expand our programs and do different things because of exactly that and we're going to continue to do it because we know that the services work and we know that we're you know people are not um reoffending and the recidivism rate as patrick said is extremely low we want to educate people more and let them understand why these services are important. And, you know, you can't, the data doesn't lie. I could sit here and Ann and tell you right. how wonderful the connection is right. and how great our programs right. are, and et cetera. But the reality is we've got the data. We've got the numbers. We're doing this because it is working. So when I tell you that, it's not because I'm, you know, here promoting an agency or a program. It's because we have this data on all of our programs and we need to get this word out more because we are saving the state money period and to continue to throw people you know get them incarcerated and not have programs we're continuing generational cycles of abuse Mm -hmm. we're increasing crime if we don't have these programs we're costing the state triple the amount of money and it's only going to get worse so you know i mean we feel like we're we need to continue moving forward we we do it cheaper and we have better outcomes well, you know, and that's just it. That's and the it, bottom line. Right. And, you know, if, if Lisa sounds like she's fired up, she is. Mm-hmm. And, and so aren't you, Patrick, because you see the reality. You know, it's easy to say slash this, slash that. You know, we got to quit throwing money at this. And th- there's a lot of other things that don't have those measured outcomes that you're talking about, Lisa, that perhaps should be looked at and not services like this. Because you know what? Crime isn't going to go away. No. Uh, right. Substance abuse isn't going to go away. It's Homelessness fact, isn't going to go. It's, it's going to get worse. It's when, getting worse. When it's getting we worse. cut services like this, the state is being penny-wise and dollar-foolish. I mean, the price tag on the back end when you cut services like this is humongous to the taxpayer. Um, programs like this take take people who cost taxpayers money and turn them into taxpaying citizens. Don't get me started, Patrick. <laughs> Thank goodness we're at the end of this program. I know. Now I'm all fired I'm up. I'm all for the fired next, up, too. That's next... right. Well, well, we'll stay fired up, all right? <laughs> okay, let's do that. All right. Well, I want to thank, again, State Representative Brandon McKee for being on the program. Patrick Fallon, it was great having you in studio. Thank and, you. of course, Lisa, it's always nice seeing your smiling and sometimes passionate face. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once, once and on the 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 